everyone, this is Cobain. This is part two and the last part of the discussion on the role of the Logos as tree of life and as incarnation of the Torah. So this was recorded in the same session that the last video was recorded in, except of course for this introduction. If you enjoy these videos, if you get something out of them on a regular basis, please consider becoming a pa uh, patron, which comes with select exclusive content in addition to access to my calendar to schedule one-on-one -on -one, um, uh, appointments, each of which guarantees at least an hour, but it sometimes goes over that if I don't have a call scheduled right afterwards. So that is greatly appreciated, but I really do appreciate everyone who comes and watches these videos. Uh, please remember me in your prayers. Please remember to say your daily prayers and especially Psalm 91. And that is Psalm 90 in the Septuagint numbering for the people of Ukraine, as has been requested by the canonical head of the Ukrainian church. Uh, no comments about that, please. But uh, with that said, please uh, enjoy. The discussion. We begin to understand the logic of the system of uh, clean and unclean animals. Now, for the Gentiles, a clean animal, people ask, well, why? how did Noah distinguish clean and unclean animals? Why did it matter to him? Well, we're told because those were the only ones he could offer as sacrifices. Of course, that's why. I mean, it, I won't turn on that. But um, if for Gentiles, it meant those animals you could offer sacrifice. So Gentiles could offer deer as sacrifice, for example. Well, Israel could only sacrifice five animals. But they could only eat clean animals. I, the idea being, Israel is a living sacrifice for the nations. You are what you eat. And thus, Israel becomes, as it were, a clean, sacrificial animal. It's described in many places, for example, as, a, as an ox. Yeah, Israel is an ox. When it goes astray, it's stiff-necked. It's like the calf which it worshipped. I'm like what you worship? Well... You're stiff-necked like a resistant uh, uh, cattle. Faithful, you're the sacrificial implement by which the nations are sweetened. Well, in the system of clean and unclean animals, uh, one of the criteria is that the animals must chew the cud. Okay, so rabbits are described here as, um, as animals which fit this criterion because the important point here is the appearance, right? So rabbits look like they're chewing the cud. And the key sign is that their mouth is always in motion. So think about what it would look like if you're just constantly um, whispering the Jesus prayer. Your lips are moving constantly. You always have the name of the Lord on your lip. Now, since Jesus is the wisdom of God, uh, Jesus, uh, his, his, the wisdom of God, the meditation on God's wisdom, well, that occurs in our constant profession of Jesus. Think even about when you are thinking, when you're contemplating a particular aspect of scripture. Well, we might talk to ourselves. And so our lips are always moving. We're always ruminating on the scriptures. That's, you know what ruminate means? Ruminate, literally in its etymological foundation for the English word. The language is, is not randomly structured. It's not happenstance. There's something real about how concepts relate to the words which signify them. I don't believe they're arbitrary. Well, the English definition of, of ruminate is it, it, it usually means you know, the intellectual consideration of a, of a matter. So you, you're working on a, a scientific theory. I'm, I'm ruminating on this subject, you might say. Well, the word also archaically and in its Latin root, which comes from, I think, rumino, ruminare, 
It means chew the cud. One of the many examples how words reveal correspondences, which are found both in scripture and in the creation. So we begin with tree of life, tree of knowledge, and with tree of life, tree of knowledge. And because the Torah is made from plants, our paper is made from trees, it's, it is a tree. It's a, uh, uh, it's a tree um, in part because just like the temple sanctuary, the Ark of the Covenant, the Holy of Holies, is a tree house of sorts. Well, the word of God is present in his book, which is why the name is woven through it in many ways, including numerically. Which is why I, should, I meant to mention earlier, Exodus 17, God makes himself known according to his name. And we're told that there's a book, a book, uh, which is meant to be written down by which that memory of that redemptive event against Amalek and the condemnation of Amalek might be perpetuated through time. So words, books, memories, trees, all these things, you need to keep them all in mind because what we're meant to remember is all creation because God made all things through his word in whom is present his name. When we assimilate the logi of creation to our minds, we aren't just receiving something, we're also giving something back as images of the Logos in whom the spirit of the Logos dwells to bring the creation into our mind is to perfect the structure of creation. Now, think about knowledge. We achieve the knowledge of good and evil. I have a whole video on this, uh, but the, uh, the tree of the knowledge uh, of good and evil. It's a tree of kingship, of dominion. Right? So we're told in Philippians chapter 3 that the glory which animates the resurrected body, that intimate being brought into the life of God, well, that is the very glory by which Jesus rules the world. Because if God creates the world through Jesus, he holds it in existence. In a sense, he continually uh, uh, creates the world. And that means he rules it because if you rule something, that means that you decide ultimately the way that it's going to be. So creation and reign, holding something in existence, these are bound up very, very tightly together. And when God glorifies the world, he fills it with his light. Light, glory fills the tabernacle, Exodus 40, the temple, First Kings uh, chapter 8. And then Haggai in Haggai uh, chapter 2 speaks of... Uh, 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 the coming of God into his temple in a more glorious way, which happens with Jesus. Well, the apprehension of God's qualities, that is the presence of God in our mind, that makes God present in the world. We can mirror God out into the world when we apprehend him, when he is present in us. So that word for knowledge, oh, I meant, <laughs> meant to finish that thought. Knowledge of good and evil, it's a tree of kingship. Okay, so, a uh, tree of knowledge of good and evil, uh, there's multiple senses to this. So, it's a tree of kingship. Um, number one, we know this, First Kings chapter 3, okay? Solomon prays for the wisdom to discern between good and evil. That means he is, has the wisdom to rule, all right? Uh, Joseph uh, says, you meant this for evil, God meant it for good. Well, Joseph has been described as wise, and he is the one who knows how to rule. That is, he knows how to actively uh, shape and, and, and mold the world to produce a great harvest. Uh, uh, and remember the word good is not just used ethically, it's also analogically used for uh, in, a, in a utilitarian sense. 
And what I mean by that is you want to build a house, right? So you want to build a house, a particular structure, take a brick and you say, this brick is good for this. What does that mean? It means that it's useful in relation to the whole which one has in mind. So one has in mind a form, an idea, and all ideas are ultimately rooted in what is eternally present in God's mind. And that uh, we push that form out into the world because we look at things and we know that it's either good or not good for the purpose we have in mind. Okay, so that's what knowledge of good and evil is about. It's about kingship. It's about reign because kingship is fundamentally about cultivating the world. It's about creatively developing it. A whole video on this says again. Now the word knowledge that's used about uh, uh, about the a tree of knowledge, good and evil, is actually not it's not a common word uh, in the Torah. It appears exactly seven times. It's one of the many sevenfold sequences used in scripture. And obviously we should have in mind the uh, the seven day creation week. Um, knowledge, it's assimilating the ideas of creation so that one might reign over the creation. And the Sabbath is about uh, God is enthroned in his sanctuary on the Sabbath. Kings, they have a Sabbath rest after they acquire dominion over things. Many associations one could go through here. Sorry about that. <laughs> the dog snoring. Um, and it's used only seven times with in, in the Torah. A couple times it is used in reference to uh, the spirits indwelling of Bezalel of Judah. I want to read to you this text. It's a very interesting text now number one he's a judahite we're told he's a judahite we know already from genesis 49 the messiah is going to be from judah in numbers 24 he's the same language in genesis 49 and it describes the messiah extending god's glorious garden out to the ends of the world it says his seed will be in many waters well those many waters they represent the nations just as daniel 7 the nations are linked with the ocean jonah goes to the nations to assyria by water, even it could have gotten there by land, technically. And the harvest of the nations is signified by Peter and the apostles being fishers of men. So the Messiah comes from Judah. We already know that. Well, Bezalel, the hypothesis that we should begin with is, well, is this about this is about the Messianic king? And that works out very well. In fact, Bezalel is described as a glorified Adam figure. Remember, Adam is, has the spirit of God, the breath of life that's put in his nostrils. When he falls into sin, we're told that he will bring forth bread by the sweat of his nose, is the literal reference. And that should, we should understand this as a point of contrast with his previous animation by the spirit. He would create things and glorify things through the spirit of God. And we know from Numbers 24... That uh, Messianic king is described as uh, having dominion. It's not a common word in the Torah, and it's used here, and it's used in Genesis 1 about Adam, given dominion over the world. So Messianic king, we already have reason to think, is a last Adam figure, a new Adam figure, when we consider the Torah as a whole. And in Exodus chapter uh, uh, 30, I believe it's chapter 31, we hear about Bezalel of Judah, and in the structure of the instructions for the tabernacle, remember tabernacle, miniature representation of the world. <laughs> I know I say that all the time, but that's because it's so central miniature representation of the world. It's given in seven speeches. Those seven speeches match the seven creation days, thematically, spiritually, and that helps us interpret the nature both of the tabernacle and the creation. So, where is Bezalel mentioned? Well, he's mentioned in the sixth speech. He is a Adam figure. This tells you that the idea about Genesis 1-3 being two creation accounts, total garbage, because this uses uh, language and ideas from both of these so-called creation accounts. The reason that uh, the story of man's creation is told sequentially after the seven-day creation has already 
described is because there's a literary purpose here. Moses and God want to tell us things about the creation of man in a particular way, but also it's important that we have the unity of Genesis uh, chapter 1 in the creation week. It's a topic for another time. Um, but the last of the speeches here in Exodus 31 is all about the Sabbath. Okay, so that tells you right there. Oh, we should be looking for creation week patterns. Well, here's what we read about Bezalel. Remember, sixth speech, sixth day, the creation of man. Lord said to Moses, this is Exodus 31, verse 1 and following. See, I have called by name, means he knows Bezalel, he knows his inner nature. Bezalel, son of Uri, son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. And I have filmed him with the spirit of God, with ability and intelligence, with knowledge and all craftsmanship. This is the same word uh, for knowledge that is used in Genesis chapter uh, 3. With knowledge and all craftsmanship, to devise artistic designs, to work in gold, silver, bronze. Remember how... Genesis 2, it describes the various lands of the pre-flood world, and one of those lands, the land of uh, Havilah, is described as having precious stones and precious metals, including gold. In cutting stones for setting, carving wood to work in every craft. Remember, glorifying the world, work. What does it mean to rest from one's work? Well, one is sabbatically joined to God. That tells you what work is. What was God doing during the six creation days? He was creatively molding the world. And that's what we're doing in work as well. To work in every craft. Behold, I have appointed with him a holy ab of the son of Ahisamach. Now, here is an Adam figure and a helper, as Adam and Eve, spiritually and typologically speaking, of the tribe of Dan. I have given to I have given to all able men ability that they may make all that I have commanded you, and so on and so forth. So the word for knowledge that is used of the tree of knowledge, we should interpret through the lens, among other things, of this passage. It is Jesus who is wisdom himself. And we're actually told in the book of Samuel, the angel of the Lord, uh, we're told that David is like the angel of the Lord, able to discern between good and evil. It's really cool. Jesus is the tree of knowledge. He's the source of all wisdom. All the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in him. And what, are we, what did we just read about? Treasures, gold, precious stones, silver. This is why the scripture uses the language it does. So the spirit enters into Bezalel and gives him wisdom. He's the spirit of wisdom, and that's Jesus, so that he might creatively restructure the world into an image of heaven. Okay, so God creates the heaven and the earth, and it's the earth which is formed, filled, and brightened. And then on the second creation day, we have uh, the visible heaven created. It's filled with stars on the fourth creation day, and we know that there are two distinct heavens because there's one which is heaven, there's the other which is the heaven of heavens where God lives, and that's just like, because they correspond, the holy, it's just the holy, that's what it means, it's used as substantive, means the holy place, and the holy of holies. Holy, holy of holies, heaven, heaven of heavens. Okay, so the life of heaven, we have a myriad upon myriad of angels. Okay? They don't grow, they don't develop. According to the Father of the Church, and I would argue Scripture, uh, the choice that they make for good or for ill, they are fixed in 
the disposition they embrace. Why? Because a sin is mortal according to the degree of knowledge we have. Well, they commit their sin in view of the glory of God, and it is in the glory of God that all possibly relevant facts about the choice they were making are present. So there's no room, as it were, to re-choose. They'd already taken everything into account. Every possibility was already considered when they rebelled against God. That's perhaps a subject for another time, but I've heard people say there's no logic to this, but no, it actually is quite striking how um, uh, coherent this story is. So uh, the heaven, this is where God lives. He's the paradigm for all creation. And so that's the um, that's the archetype which is imprinted on the world. And Bezalel makes the tabernacle, which remember, tabernacle is an image of the life of heaven. And in fact, the temple, we hear uh, that it has ribs, legs, uh, heart, head, uh, is used in places. Why? Because it is an image of a glorious body, because the body itself is an image of the life of heaven. The body itself is a temple. And in the book of Numbers, this word for knowledge is used to refer to the revelation of the messianic word. So Eve's eyes, when she partakes of the tree of knowledge, it says her eyes were opened. She sees what was previously concealed from her. But just as those who see the glory of God will see it and die, and if they're not ready, they will die into death, it's dangerous. So also Adam and Eve, their eyes were opened, but the knowledge which they beheld was too exalted for them, and they became subject to death. Or we're also told that Balaam, the one who gives this prophetic song about the Messiah in Numbers chapter 24, we're told that he gazed with uncovered eyes at the naked revelation of the inner significance of the whole Torah. What will happen in the latter days, in the days of the end? God begins the Bible with in the beginning, and then we have prophecies about the days of the end. Proton eschaton, creation, glorified creation, creation, new creation. Adam, last Adam. What Balaam looks at is the inner significance of the whole Torah. The Torah is about the revelation of the Messiah, the king. He's the archetype, the model for all creation. He's the blueprint, the plan, hidden phrases in God, as Paul says, for all creation. And thus, the archetype for the tabernacle. Now, like Eve, Balaam's mistake is fatal. And in fact, Balaam uh, is executed in the book of Numbers. This is a fatalist error to gaze at what he was not prepared to gaze upon. You'll remember that uh, Balaam actually, in the famous incident where the donkey speaks, remember it's Jesus. He's right there. The word of God is right there. The word of God becomes present. And what do you know? Even the animals begin to speak because the word of God is right there. But it's dangerous. It's very dangerous. So in this, we see the significance of the way in which the threads I've mentioned are tied up. Uh, the Torah, and this holds true for the entirety of divine revelation, is, as described in Deuteronomy 30, both a tree of knowledge and a tree of life. But one might say that one has to chew before you swallow. If you try to swallow before you chew, you're going to choke. 
and that's and I'm not that's not a cute joke. There is I think it's it, there's an inner logic to to all of this. So what this means is that if you chew, you won't only ruminate, you won't only chew the cud, spiritually speaking, you won't only eat the book, but you will also walk in the way of God. Chew is to give you the energy to walk. Remember the chariot of God. It moves infinitely quick in right angles, it flies here, there, and everywhere. Ezekiel becomes a living chariot. Why? Because Ezekiel's given the spirit of God. He's called the son of Adam when he's given the spirit of God. Ezekiel ends with him being led into the temple, the paradise restored. And the motive power, which is in Ezekiel, is the spirit. That's why he flies here, there, and everywhere. Well, that was in the wheels of this chariot, which rides out from the temple. Now, when Adam and Eve are exiled, we're told that the way into the garden was closed. A specific word is used. Now, think about this. Prepare the way of the Lord. This, these are two bookends of a great theme in Scripture. The imagery of a way or a road. And in fact, in many languages, perhaps most languages, the word for way and the word for road uh, are the same word. This imagery of walking in a specific way or a specified path or road is used with increasing significance. Think about what Paul says, walk by the Spirit. That's not a random turn of phrase. Abraham, Genesis 17, he's told to walk before God and be perfect. What does God do? God walks before or in front of Israel throughout the wilderness, beginning with his presence at the Red Sea, where he splits the Red Sea. He's lighting up the night, as Exodus 14 begins with. That's just like God lit up the night in the beginning. Then he divides the waters and the waters, just as he did in Genesis chapter 1. So it's a new creation. It is a baptism. Israel is born again. How? Through faith. It says they believed in the Lord and his servant Moses. So we are born again in faith. It's not, Paul is not making stuff up. God walks before Israel. And he walks before Israel in a very precise pattern. The wall of water between which they walk. We're told that it is on their right and it is on their left. And so in the Torah, we're told that uh, Israel was to turn neither to the right nor to the left. You'll remember in Ezekiel, Ezekiel moves in right angles. The chariot moves in right angles. It means there's a great precision of movement. Moses himself is transfigured when he's placed in relation to God's walking forwards. Now, Gregory of Nyssa says that it took me a long time to understand how this logic worked, but it was really fulfilling and enriching when I discovered how Gregory, Gregory's insight is not just, you know, a, a fun metaphor. <laughs> Gregory says uh, about Exodus 33 to 34, God goes ahead of Moses and Moses sees God's back, not his face, but then Moses' face is transfigured. And Gregory Nyssa says, this is about following God. We partake in his energies because energy is an operation. Remember, talking about a motive power, movement, energy, activity. We're united to God through his energies because we are moving. 
God is moving. He's infinitely fast. That means he's infinitely alive. What does it mean to move? To move means that you're going from one place to another. Now, the faster you move, as C.S. Lewis says, the closer you are to being in two places at once. So what happens if you're moving infinitely fast? You're everywhere at once. Ever moving rest. So quick that you're at rest. This is the opposite of the rest of death, which is a cessation of motion. Why is it that glory is linked with heat? Well, what do we actually know, physically speaking, happens in heat? The uh, molecular composition of the hot thing is moving faster. Cold death means it's completely still. So Moses walks behind God. God walks forward, Moses follows him, and thus he's transfigured. So he glows. Moses' face glows. Israel is then to follow Moses. Moses follows God's back, so Moses' his face is transfigured. And thus, what is the classical word for interpretation of the Torah? Halakha. And that's taken from the word halakh. And you know what halakh means? It means walk. This all really ties together. It is amazing. And so this is part of the same logic that I mentioned in relation to the dietary code and rumination, chewing the cud. A clean animal is an animal which has a hoof and its hoof is split. Now, there are regulations about birds and fish, and I won't get into it at the moment, but there is uh, there are analogous rules. Okay, So if you want to um, go into the details of Leviticus 11, it's amazing how much rich theology there is there. Check out James Jordan's book, Food and Faith. It's a PDF. You can get on wordmp3.com. Okay. So uh, why a hoof? Well, a hoof... Uh, I want you to think about what God says to Moses. Okay, God comes to Moses. He says, take off your shoes because you're on holy ground. Okay, so a hoof is a kind of shoe and unclean ground is the inverse. Remember how man is cursed from the ground? Well, man has to be separated from the ground then. So spiritually speaking, because animals symbolize people, spiritually speaking, the animals must be separated from the ground as well if they are to be clean. But they also have to have a split hoof. Okay. Why split hoof? Well, what does a split hoof do? It allows for exactitude, precision of movement, okay? It means that when you act, you know exactly the purpose for which you are acting. This is something which should teach us a great deal about how to live and how to speak. When we speak, it's not just about avoiding saying bad things, okay? We have to know exactly what we intend to accomplish. When you say something to someone, why? If you can't give yourself an answer, no, I don't know what I'm saying. I just feel like it. Be purposeful in all things. Know what you are working towards, what you're acting in relation to, why you're doing what you're doing. Because God always knows why. He knows himself perfectly. There's no subconscious that God has. He knows himself infinitely. And thus, he acts with infinite purpose. Everything he does, he does for a reason. So, I know some people hate cliches, but you can't say truism without true. So there's, there's a, uh, uh, one of my favorite little phrases. You can't say true is about true, but it's true. Everything does happen for a reason, ladies and gentlemen. Don't be so attracted by the prospect of being a hard-nosed cynic who sees the world as it is that you blind yourself to the reality of things. So Paul says, look carefully how you walk. Look. 
Remember, Eve's eyes are opened. Wisdom is what she attempts to gain. And walking means to move in a particular direction, either to God or uh, running from God. Look carefully how you walk. Not as unwise, but as wise. It's Ephesians 5.15. So Ezekiel, he's the image of the meaning of the dietary code in all of these ways. Number one, he images the chewing of the cud because he consumes the scroll as food. Uh, and he's an image of being separated from the ground because he flies from place to place. And he's an image of exact movement because the chariot moves in right angles. Yeah. The spirit which animates that chariot goes into Ezekiel. And Ezekiel thus as the instrument by which the prophetic word is issued out. Uh, is issued through the prophet. And this exact precision of motion, this is underscored by the uh, right angles according to which the wheels are placed in relation. It's Ezekiel chapter 1. And then at the end of the book, Ezekiel measures to perfection the designs for the Messianic city temple. Why is it that the exact dimensions of temples are always given? Because temples reveal to us the meaning of things and the exactitude of the symbolism that we see alerts us to the reality that the world really is structured that way. As I've mentioned many, many times, this is not just a feature of sanctuaries. Everything in the world is placed in a relation which is intentional and symbolic, even if you can't see it. One of my favorite examples is the sun and the earth. Well, the solar number, traditionally, is 33. You know the sun is 333,000 times more massive than the earth. Its diameter is 33.3 times 3 times the earth's diameter these symbols are real they're not made up the reason that ptolemaic cosmology missed the boat was not because it valued symbolism thus the idea of the perfect epicycle it's because it didn't uh recognize the incredible subtlety and depth of that symbolism it's more symbolic and precise than the notion of revolutions and perfect epicycles, perfect um, uh, uh, circles. So to walk, well, walking is having dominion over the world. Think about Christ's conquest of the world were placed under his feet. That's what we're told. What happens, Israel goes through the land. Every step or every inch on which the sole of your foot treads. Walking is exercising dominion because one exercises dominion by acting and walking is the quintessential act of motion. And it, uh, a, uh, uh, this is present in the structure of the Hebrew language. Remember, we're placed under the feet of Christ because uh, heaven is his throne. Uh, the earth is his footstool. Footstool, this is language about the Holy of Holies, the Ark of the Covenant. This is footstool. It's where his presence from heaven touches the earth well uh the word for footstool is hadom which should remind you adam these things are connected to each other the presence of god flows through man and the perfect man is he who is both throne and footstool heaven and earth jesus christ 
So one exercises dominion or ownership of the world. How? In relation to God's creative will. But, in order to walk, you have to move. And where do you get the energy to move? If you eat, try to run a marathon after starving yourself, you will die. And this is a very serious point about the symbolic logic. Can you eat dirt? Nope. A tree, one way it expresses the life of God is it takes the energy of the world. It's true for grain plants as well, of course. It takes the energy of the world and it transfigures it so that we can take that energy. You can't eat dirt, but that very matter which is in the dirt you can't eat, is transformed into an apple or a pear, which you can't eat. Then that enables you to move. Spirit of God is present. He gives you life through that which is transfigured in the tree, which is and thus an instrument, an agent of God's creative will. Think about this in terms of the staff. Well, a staff is, of course, made from a tree. A staff is a, a, a tree which is placed in the hand, which is about rule, dominion, power. Placed in the hand, and it's the instrument by which a human extends rule over the world. Remember, Moses is the one who by his staff brings all the plagues. And the plagues are about creative destruction. But Moses' staff also works miracles. There's creation, creation, destruction. Because everything that, every act of destruction God carries out is a creative act. We never move backwards. God always pressing the world from glory to glory. Well, Moses, so we're told he's like God to Pharaoh. We know that there's glory in his face. And so he's the agent by which the heaven is subject to plagues, the earth is subject to plagues. You have the darkness in heaven, you have the killing of crops on earth, and the waters are subject to plagues, turn to blood. Moses is then the instrument by which the tabernacle is built, so the world is deconstructed, then reconstructed. How? Through the tree, which is in his hand, or the staff, which is in his hand, and the authority of, of Aaron and the Levites over Israel, well, what do you know? That is signified by his rod that blossoms. So we'll wrap up by returning to Psalm 1. Psalm 1 says, The righteous man is like a tree which is planted by streams of water that bears its fruit in season, and all he does, he prospers. And what is Psalm 1 talking about? It's talking about motion. It's talking about walking. Uh, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked or stands in the way of sinners or sits in the seat of mockers. But his delight is in the Torah of the Lord. And on his Torah, he meditates day and night. He's always chewing on it. And thus, he's energized. So if the Torah is a tree, if the, if the Torah is a tree of life and a tree of knowledge, and you are what you eat, then man should be a tree. Well, what do you know? He is like a tree, planted by streams of water, which bears its fruit in season, and all he does, he prospers. And thus, Ezekiel 47 tells us, the nations are healed by the river which flows out from the Messianic sanctuary. And by that river, there are trees which, quote, bear their fruit in season. Ezekiel's quoting Psalm chapter 1. Because the glorification of man is the glorification of the world because the world exists in man. And thus, as man is in God, the world exists in God. So, uh, thank you for uh, uh, listening. Um, 
if you uh, if, if you're listening to this, this is part two. I've decided to, I decided now to split it into two bits. Uh, so hope you enjoyed it. We got something out of it. And uh, uh, please do pray for me. Please do pray for the suffering people of Ukraine. And uh, I will see you next time.